this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a British Sri Lankan novelist born and raised in northwest London, whose first novel, In Our Mad and Furious City, in 2018, won the Dylan Thomas Prize, the Jallet Prize, and the Authors Club Best First Novel Award. It was shortlisted for the Booker and the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction. Their second novel is Mr. Mister, a story about a young British Iraqi man who finds himself in a UK detention centre after fleeing the Syrian conflict. Guy Gunaratni, welcome to Meet the Writers. It's such a pleasure to have you back here. Thank you, Georgia. Thanks for having me back. Um, Now, we spoke a lot about your first book and a little about your background, but I'd just like to go over that because your parents were from Sri Lanka, but you grew up in Neasden in northwest London, and that really is what your first book is about. Not not so much your own life, but but very much set in that gritty northwest London. I say gritty, actually. Neasden's very gentrified now. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's changed, transformed. um, But just remind us about your first book. Well, that first book, it began, I believe, in 2013, just after an incident in Woolwich, the, the killing of Lee Rigby. And it was, again, inspiration is definitely the wrong word, but it, it did come from that experience of watching that happen. The book itself is really a, a novel told in five separate voices. Um, and just to remind people, Lee Rigby was yeah. an off-duty soldier. Yeah, that was killed by a, what was at the time one of the first sort of lone wolf killings, people inspired by groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS who weren't around at the time. But the novel sort of follows five characters in the aftermath of a similar incident that occurs at the very beginning of the book. It's written in sort of vernacular, I suppose, three young characters who grow up around that in Neasden and an estate and two older characters speaking about their experiences in Northern Ireland as well as the 1950s Notting Hill. So it just talks about, I guess, the proximity of violence and what that does to a person's sense of self. Mm. And the book did incredibly well. I mean, it won that string of prizes I just read out. And you were also long-listed for the book. And now for a first-time novelist, that is absolutely huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you never know really how you how you react to it, I suppose. And I, I guess it's just a sensibility thing. I, I ended up uh, retreating quite a bit. It was very full-on and yeah. sort of... Uh, I live half my time in Sweden and in London, so it was quite um, helpful to have distance um, during that time. Yeah, yeah. Because you actually started as a a documentary filmmaker. Mm. Yeah, myself and my partner during our 20s. I don't know really how. Whenever I recount this story, I have no idea how. We, we summoned the sort of courage to do this, but we my, my partner's background was in human rights and mine was in current affairs journalism. So we started a production company and did stories really all over the world. We did um, a story about child soldiers in Uganda, media suppression in places like Guatemala and Sri Lanka, as you say, where my parents are from. Yeah, it teaches a lot, and especially when you're that young. We were very young and green. Mm. But uh, it's incredibly formative, that period of my life. And she actually uh, made you publish your book. <laughs> yeah, she forced it. Uh, she's like that. Heidi, she... Um, I, I was writing this in the early hours whilst we were working together and eventually when a, a book had formed itself, I really didn't know what I was going to do with it. I had really no intention of doing anything further. Heidi was really the one that pushed me to at least at least find an agent. And she was right. As soon as I got Sophie, my my agent, things went quite quickly. Mm. As you say, it then kind of forced almost a, a period of introspection. And you were very lucky because at that time you were based in a, a Cambridge college. That's right. Yeah. Um, just after all the hoopla with the, <laughs> the first book, 
I was invited to apply for a fellowship at Cambridge University at, at Trinity College, which is an extraordinary thing to have happened. And a very unique fellowship where you, you just are given a room and a desk to write in. Everything's really taken care of. And it's quite extraordinary that for those two years, especially during the time when my, my two children were born, I was able to go and have a space to myself and write into some, a book at, at that time was getting quite difficult to write through and having that time and space is I I, you know I it'll never happen again and having those three years especially during a pandemic Mm. quite a tumultuous time (laughs) for everyone having that space was was vital for this book to be finished it's a book Mr Mr is a book that really forces the reader to engage and to think about big big themes and I wonder for you if the shape of the book changed from its inception to its publication in any major ways? Uh, yeah, and in many ways, I think that the book began very small, very a modest story about a, a father and son, really. And the first thing that appeared was the voice, Yaya Bas, the protagonist's voice. I usually begin there, and I, I begin quite open to see where this happens. I just want to dive in, I, I guess, again, a sensibility problem. I, I just want to begin and see what happens. And I knew the voice was, was tricky, and I, you know, I wasn't quite sure where it would go. And it sort of began there, you begin then to try to discern what form and what shape the book could take. And it was it was a couple of drafts in where I knew that the only form that or, or a narrative mode that it could sort of be contained to an extent is a picaresque narrative, at which point I I started to to read quite broadly into that tradition um, and have it bleed. How in. would you define picaresque? The easiest way to get the reference is a sort of a life and times tale. So Dickensian, Dickensian, really. um, Defoe, those stories of traveller tales, I suppose. A story of becoming, usually in a Dickensian life and times, you have a sort of a penniless orphan um, mm. who begins in a multivarious origin and then learns how to become, say, a gentleman. There's a, a forming of a self. Or there is, you know, there are other ways to think about it, a Bildungsroman or a Kunstlerroman where it's an artist as a protagonist, where an artist begins and finds a way to articulate themselves in whatever art form and, and uh, find some level of mastery, say. There are ways to think about it, and all these sorts of genres or, or forms bled into the book. Mm. I mean, you, you reference Great Expectations there, and of yeah. course there is a character in your book called Estella. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in fact, Bleaker House yeah. uh, makes an appearance as well. You talk about Yahya Bas speaking, his voice yeah. articulating, and of course, I'm not giving anything away because it happens on the first page, he cuts out his tongue. Yeah. The thing is, it's, I always wonder about this. There's the nature of the book, and, it's, and the nature of the picaresque is, is that it's quite theatrical, and there is a level of heightened sort of engagement to it, and Yahya himself is a, is a, is a performer. And at the beginning of the, of the novel, that act of self-mutilation really comes back to that heightened tradition. And I think that it is what he says it is on the first page. It is an act of liberation. It allows him to exceed and go beyond what he feels he can say and how he can articulate it. So that the book is a series of of letters, I suppose, letters to his interlocutor, Mr. Mm. person he only refers to as Mr. And the written word for him is the place where he can he can feel through his life 
and navigate it in a way, in this sort of ebullient, multivarious way. It's a violent act, but it's done ecstatically. There are a number of... So he grows up, and we'll come back to his circumstances, this house that you describe so beautifully. <laughs> Growing up in the, in the 90s, he becomes famous as a sort of poet and a speaker. He's exiled, he's eventually captured, and we follow him throughout this. And, of course, these conversations or this writing happens after he's been captured. Mm. Um, let's go to this house that you describe, because he's the son of a, an English mother, and she lives in this home with many, many other women. Yeah, I think, yeah, that was definitely, I was drawing from Dickens there. And Dickens' families usually are non-normative. I mean, you have sisters becoming mothers and brothers becoming mm-hmm. fathers. And, and um, I, I needed a sense, I think, or at least Yaya felt to me he needed a sense of multiplicity in his origin, a place where things were fluid and roles switched and changed. The house he grows up in, the, the mother's house, is a place that's a sort of strewn with other people's possessions, people who live there now or have previously lived there and moved on. So clothes, brooches, belts and hats and dresses and all kinds of things. So he he sort of starts to adopt these things as his own or he tries them on and discards them. It's the beginning of his sense of fluidity, I suppose, where he begins to realise that in, in an absence of a thing or in negation, he can find, I suppose, new thresholds from which he can invent and imagine. And that is the kind of thing that a, that a house like that offers a young boy. And mm. it's perfect for a poet, right? A place where he can begin imagining. The book, if I had to boil it down to one word, which it would be criminal to do, <laughs> uh, but it's about identity. Mm. It's about his identity, but also yours to a degree. You use the personal pronouns, they, them. And that came within the writing of the book? Yeah. And again, during the time at Cambridge, given that space and time to really think through this and sort of relieve this sense of enormous gratitude for being allowed time to to, to think through, I think there is always a, a sense of self-inquiry that occurs when you're writing a long time. It took six years to write, so it's a long time to think through things um, like identity. And yeah, it was, a, it was a period of my life where I was trying to figure out new formulations for myself and you are confronted by things when you're when you're thinking this hard on a subject mm. to a point where you know I had to begin to have conversations with those closest to me and I have to say it's been a, a beautiful experience difficult but you know beautiful but I suppose in the novel it tracks right you, you have on one level a story of a returnee a young boy who begins in London and is I suppose radicalized by the world that he sees as hostile to him that tries to impose an identity on him or multiple identities is racialized is othered and then leaves exiled goes to syria and then comes back and is locked up that's a a narrative that we've seen in figures over the last 25 years in shamima begum for example in jack letts an identity that is fixed and narrativized in a certain way that is entirely constrained And if I think about the picaresque, a generous form where you have, yeah, a story of a a sense of self-becoming, something did happen during that time where I realized Yaya was evading and subverting the entire thing. Usually there is a forming or a cohesion of a self at the end of a novel or end of a picaresque novel. In this book, it's entirely the opposite. Yaya, there is an unraveling, an undoing, 
an unmaking of himself. He sees identity itself or an essentialized idea of identity as a suspect. He sees it as imposed in ways where he had no hand in defining. He's othered into a sense where he can only, the only thing he can do is assume roles and then discard them, assume faces, names, and discard them, personas, and then move on. And this idea of multiplicity, this idea of getting to a place where descriptions for a self is no longer necessary. There's this wonderful uh, Edouard Glissant quote about finding new availabilities of being. And without giving anything away, that is a place where Yaya ends up in new availability of, of being. And that's a difficult journey to go through. And I suppose that did happen to me. And it's a space that is uh, in constant becoming. It isn't fixed anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's a place I'd, I personally prefer to be. Mm. And it's a, a place where Yaya is. The thing is, Mr. his interlocutor, he requires Yaya to be fixed. He requires Yaya to tell a straight story. And with Yaya cutting out its tongue, uh, beginning there, and within that negation, within that absence of a tongue, he can say anything, he can be anyone. And that, to me, I suppose, in this strange, skewered, squinted way, it's a story of liberation. You talk about Yaya as if he wrote himself, that Mm. you as an author had very, I feel like you're saying this This came from within you. I feel like you're saying you had no control over him almost. Yeah, I'm fully aware how strange that sounds, but I, I, I can't help but think that way. And I, and I know other writers have had this happen before. That's the most wonderful thing. It, um, yes and no, Georgina. <laughs> I think, the thing is, I, I, I have other artist friends who when I recount that story, I would tell that story about how that happened, where the, the, the voice appeared and I just had to follow it. Yeah, everyone else has this pang of jealousy of like, wow, that I wish that happened. And especially that project like that where you are an entirely different person at the end of the project that does sound incredibly attractive for, for any artist, a transformative experience. And it certainly was. It was just an incredibly difficult one to hold on to. In multiple ways, there were so many drafts of this novel where it, it just broke in my hands. And I was so, there were periods of just such desperation and really just sadness where like the, the yaya wouldn't settle. And there is a, a sense of perhaps acceptance that, okay, let's just see where he goes and let him speak. It is, it did feel almost like you have a very problematic friend who has a lot of things to say. And you have to listen very close to, to realise what he really is saying um, and get to that. You're always worried that you'll say the wrong thing and scare him off and he'll go running away. Um, there was a lot of that over the last six years. But hopefully there is a... It's strange to say, but there is a, a trust that builds between you and, and the work. And almost a, a sense that you as a writer just have to, has to, you have to get out your own way. Mm-hmm. The idea of your, your own self also has to just be placed away for a moment so that uh, so that Yaya can trust you enough to invite you in. You talk about some difficult times while you were writing it and I mean writing about Abu Ghraib must have been just I mean I know that you found that particularly hard. Yeah that was um, I remember that those few days so clearly I, I remember I was in Cambridge and I told my partner that like no this the period I'm going to write next is going to be quite tough so I'll need some FaceTime with my kids. <laughs> like, and I did. That's, that's how that week worked. And it was in Cambridge. 
I remember this is sounds so odd to even say out loud, but I remember going writing under my desk. Like, there's a thing I do moments sometimes when I just need when I'm just not focused enough or I need a certain space. I just wrote <laughs> wrote that wrote that type thing under my desk. The thing though that happened, and I realize I've spoken about the picaresque and and that kind of sort of narrative, and you know that that kind of book is populated by these sort of characters with surface idiosyncrasies, those Dickensian sort of habits of speech and idiom. And that's true, but there's also a strain in the book of certain modernist writers like Sir Wolfe and Eliot. And in that Abu Ghraib section, there is something that occurs where when Yahya goes very deep, when he begins to begin to really articulate himself, it isn't Dickens that comes through, it's it's writers like Wolfe who I suppose that entire generation could be sort of credited by piercing that myth of sort of coherent selves or coherent individuality, individuation, you know, like, so when Yaya is confronted by those images of Epigrave, and I suppose when I was confronted by those images, there is a loosening, there is something that occurs in Yaya's story that breaks through the picaresque somehow and, and leaks into other forms. Mm. And if anyone has paid pays attention that that not that period that section is very much from the waves wolf's work about a, a poet trying to construct a poem and it begins the same way and something sort of it, it does feel like a breach or a break when that happens when you're really focused and you have that period of introspection and i suppose you are sort of i mean especially research happens as i write usually so when i was sort of scrolling through the images that came out of Abu Ghraib and researching the people who took those pictures and the responses to those pictures and what that might do to people of a certain age, of a certain experience, especially in Britain and America. You're pushing, and it did feel like pushing against something, and when that breach occurs, it's a relief. And I suppose just as it is in the book, it's a, it's a moment of satisfaction and revelation which is a difficult thing to reconcile yourself with mm. when uh, you're speaking about a subject that is horrific and awful. Obviously, you did the Abu Ghraib research, but you must have done so much other reading around it. I know that you, you were looking into Arabic poetry, mm. Sufism. I mean, tell us a little bit more about the tremendous amount of work that wasn't actually writing. It wasn't actually work. Like, for so long, I, it's something... I was brought up in a sort of Buddhist, a Theravada Buddhist household. And I've always been interested in, in Sufism in particular. From from a young age, I think, like, in my, my teens, I picked up some art, um, a writer called Al-Ghazali, who really gave me a, a sense of, at that age, being able to read a writer like Al-Ghazali, it sort of, it does, you can't help but be formed by it in some way, a sense of, of personal responsibility and a thoughtfulness about relation and I suppose interest in Arabic poetry followed that. And for a long time, like just a, 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 I've always aspired to get somewhere with my some sort of Arabic. And yeah, during the time, I, I you know I I managed to find courses for both Islamic philosophy as well as sort of the rudiments of Arabic, and that and that certainly helped. Especially there was a period where yeah yeah is exposed to Arabic poetry as well as sort of the rest, the Western tradition. And having a sense of reading through that as I was writing felt really good. It felt, again, not like work. It's something I'm so deeply interested in and, and 
I look back on those last few years where um, the research sort of suddenly, you know, there's that period where everything you read is um, relevant mm. and generative in a way. Um, and it's, I know it's an experience that will sort of last a lifetime. I will continue to, to learn Arabic and I will continue to, to, to read more on it. It's something that will last forever for me. And it's a, a huge, again, a sense of gratitude anytime you're invested in a work that leaves a mark somehow. You're just so thankful for it. This is obviously a political work. I think all writing is political. Mm. I suppose what I'm trying to ask is, was it your intention to interrogate the system? Well, we've spoken about identity, and it is, I think, something that ought to be interrogated. And I have to say, like, before before this book, and it's strange to write a book about identity because for so long it's the word that was seemed completely uninteresting to me, especially it's the way it's, it's spoken about today. But this idea of, of sort of coherent individuality, that it is something that ought to be considered um, part of a tradition. That idea sort of appeared coterminously, I suppose, with the age of discovery and enlightenment, and as well as the emergence of colonialism and the sort of transatlantic slave trade. And so it's not a coincidence that that idea of a fixed, coherent self came out of that period. And it comes as a package and should be kind of considered as such. And then there was a period, as I say, with Freud and Derrida and, and people like this who pierced that myth. And then there's been a lot of sort of powerful intellectual work. Butler, for example, who, who tried to see what we do have then. If that was always a myth, what do we what do we have? What is the self and what is... What is there beyond those strictures? You know, if we all agree that the idea of our designation, our imposed identities came from this period of mania for classification mm -hmm. and uh, categorization in terms of what a normative body is or um, what a normative orientation is in terms of our sexuality, if that came out of that period, it means that it's contingent and therefore it can be replaced by other stories mm. and varied stories. I suppose that's the system that inevitably, with the IR, I would have to reconsider and have to interrogate. Mm. It's not, I don't know if that was an intentional thing. I, as I say, I begin very speculatively at the beginning. I see what happens. And it's, it's a, sort of a, there are leaps into the unknown. But I suppose comes back to my previous work in sort of human rights journalism. Mm. You, you leap into something, not so much to understand something or, or um, see something, as it were, like it was, it's more a sense of let me be with an idea and an experience and simmer with thought for a long time. The intention really isn't um, to find even a truth. It's more so to perform an argument or perform some kind of, yeah, it's to, to create a space where you can have that sort of dialectical performance mm. where you can see an argument play out or play through and perhaps contain that weird oscillation that occurs in your own self, in your own heart, in your own mind, when you're thinking about these things mm. carefully, thoughtfully. And as an individual, but you also 
you also write about sort of mass responses to things. So obviously, I mean, 7-7, 9-11, we have these, these great outpourings at these mm. events, Princess Diana's death, mm-hmm. and you, you write about that. You say, you mourn your martyrs in masses, mister, as if it were easier to revel in a spectacle than to acknowledge any pain of your own. I thought that was an incredible line. Yeah, I, I think it's a life and times tale, so the times have a lot to do with this story. It's also, I suppose... The story of the last 25 years. It is Yaya's response to the world he grows up in during the 90s, during the early 2000s. So you do have Diana's death and you do have the millennium and uh, 9-11, 7-7, the Iraq war. And I know personally that these experiences have, have certainly shaped to an extent how I respond and how I relate to the world. And the idea of, of sort of that collective response that again is part of that tradition i remember one of the books i haven't mentioned yet is um, gunter grass's the tin drum where you have this again squinted protagonist in oscar matra who lives through pre-war germany and during the war and i think i believe also the aftermath so you see a formation of a national myth right so you have a personal story a personal construction but also a construction of a of a national myth happening in the background and I always was very interested in that that idea of having a perspective from a bad subject Mm. I guess which is what Oscar and Yaya are they are bad subjects who tell a story about their own subjectivity (laughs) at a time where um, there are enormous pressures and fragmentations and and, uh, you see formulations of what we're supposed to be as citizens as, as, as people break apart and change and transform and I suppose navigating that path was interesting to me. Speaking, I mean, he, he has a way of speaking about collective national responses in that way. Mm. There is a, a playfulness there. He's speaking to Mr. And I suppose he wants to provoke and elicit some kind of response. He's having fun with Mr. some way. And that is a, a tension, I suppose, that occurs throughout the book. Did you have any fun, it sounds like? <laughs> It sounds like such an intense experience. Yeah, but in, intense, but I hope it comes through that yeah, yeah, is playful. Once you once you get to that breach, when you when you break through, it was incredibly difficult up to that point. But once there is an acceptance, I think, of a voice that really can't be contained, the idea of containment is ludicrous because this is someone who exceeds his sense of self. So the idea that any form could exceed could contain a, a voice like yeah, yeah was silly. So the idea for me was to, okay, let me shape the book around Yaya. Let's see what happens. And there is a point where I think it breaks through where he begins to accept that there are other ways to be. There are other availabilities of being. And I hope there is a sense of hope and a sense of liberation and freedom Mm. that is difficult and might in some ways feel like a violent breach but the story, and I suppose the, the story of the last 25 years, is about bodies crossing borders, both imaginary and material borders. Mm. Um, and those breaches are often violent, often difficult, and make you feel a kind of way. But after that, the breaking of any border, I feel, is an ecstatic act. It's a theatrical performative act, which means a lot to many people. And I hope there is as much fun or the readers do get a sense of fun, as much fun as, as Yaya is having, because he is having fun. The book took you six years. It yeah. changed your very identity. <laughs> what happens next for you? Um, next is a, 
a series of books, actually. It's not quite a trilogy, but it's three books that are connected thematically. I'm sort of, I've, I've enjoyed sort of the research period of looking to Dickens and, and sort of the 19th century novels. So now I'm sort of exhuming Kipling. I do find him still kicking, so it, it, it's it'll be interesting to look at look at that over the next period. That's so interesting. I mean, I I it's my guilty secret. I love Kipling, yeah. but his writing is so deeply incorrect. Yeah, but isn't that great? Because <laughs> suddenly it, it's it's a it's a space of tension and conflicted feelings. Similarly, I loathe and I love Kipling. I grew up with him, and I can't discard him. And so I, I want to contend with that. It's a it's a point of possibility at this point. It's. Uh, going into something difficult again, but hopefully another liberating act. Oh, I can't wait. Guy, thank you so much. Thank you, Georgian. It's a pleasure. Mr. Mister is by Guy Gunaratney. It's published by Tinder Press here in the UK and Pantheon in the United States. It's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Helmi Pillai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.